welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, friends. Welcome to you. Uh, I want to begin this morning. I want to begin this morning um, with a poem that I want to read. And it has a lot to do with where we're headed this morning in Galatians. Uh, I've been really excited about this passage and preaching it this morning. Um, so kids in the room, listen up. This is a beautiful, couple, some words I want to read that I think paint a picture that I, I want to imagine us living in. So this is called I Dream a World by Langston Hughes. I dream a world where man, no other man will scorn, where love will bless the earth and peace its path adorn. I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way, where greed no longer saps the soul, nor avarice blights our day. A world I dream where black, and wh- black or white, whatever race you be, where sh- will share the bounties of the earth, and every man is free. Where wretchedness will hang its head and joy like a pearl, attends the needs of all mankind. Of such I dream my world. Pray with me. God, we begin this morning with this picture of a world where um, where you've set things to right, where the image of you in every human is highlighted, celebrated, honored, where we're free, free to love, free to be. So it's with that vision in our minds and in our hearts that we gather as your church and we lift up these songs, pray Holy Spirit that you would lead and guide, shape, move, touch us, encourage us, challenge us, I pray. And so you know, the real reason I'm here is for one of those four special Sundays of the year that we talk about financials. It's a sweater vest Sunday. Share a little update on the financials for you. Um, So we just finished up December, which is the most important month of the year for Awaken's finances. In a typical year, we receive almost a quarter of our annual giving in December. So those numbers really determine whether we're able to stay on track for our budget for the whole year or not. And I'm really excited to announce today that we had a fantastic December of giving. We received almost $103,000 in tithes and offerings from this community, which is outstanding. It's a big number. It's exactly what we needed to stay on track for the financial year. So on behalf of the staff and the advisory team, I want to offer just a huge thanks to the congregation for such a generous December. Thank you so much. All right, so some numbers up on the screen behind me. Um, Those represent uh, Awaken's net income through the first six months of our financial year. Our financial year runs from July through June. Um, And the bars represent net income, so that means the income, the giving to the church minus the expenses. And that giant green bar over to your right, that's that December number that we were just talking about, $61,000 net income, uh, which is outstanding. And it allows us to um, have some of those red bars to the left, uh, which is typical of nonprofits or churches throughout the rest of the year. Um, In some through fall, we've received uh, almost $290,000 in gifts and spent about $245,000. 
Both of those numbers are about 3% better than we had budgeted. Um, so just simply put, we've had a great fall, we're on track, um, and we've got great momentum going into spring. For anyone that likes more numbers, we have started sending out our monthly financial dashboard through the Awaken Weekly. So take a peek there and reach out to me with any questions that you have. And then also, like always, um, I want to invite you to consider supporting Awaken as a sustaining giver as we go into spring. You may have wondered before, if I give a dollar to Awaken, how does Awaken use my dollar? Um, so I wanted to share that with you today. Um, that's up on the screen behind me. Um, so with the first 55 cents of every dollar, that big blue slice, we're able to pay our staff. So this brings you a sermon each Sunday. Um, it helps uh, pay for Jane to teach the Enneagram and for Jenna to care for our community and Mandy to care for our kids. Um, the next 19 cents, that green slice up there, that pays for us to use this building. So um, time spent with these beautiful windows and filling, filling the roof with our beautiful voices. The 12 cents in purple, we call that the congregation sliver. So um, that supports the programming that makes this church special from things like the donuts every Sunday to guest musicians to our annual church retreat together. So it's those 12 cents that create the experiences that make this feel like a community. The last 14 cents, the red sliver there, uh, that's for missions. Awaken invests in a number of different missional impulses from local organizations that feed children to global organizations working with refugees. So giving a dollar to Awaken can do a lot. It can employ an amazing staff. It can create this beautiful place of worship. Uh, it supports missional impulses and it can foster a sense of community. So again, we're so grateful to this congregation for all $289,000 you've entrusted to us so far this year. And we wanna ask you to consider supporting Awaken as we go into the spring. So with that, um, we'll take a minute. If you want to extend a hand of greeting, consider dropping a dollar in the donut bin in the back. Um, and we'll start the sermon in just a minute. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, my name's Micah, if we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday, so that's good. Uh, also, if you were here first hour last week, I'll just say this. Sometimes when you write a sermon, you imagine it happening in a certain way, and then, and, then, and then it doesn't happen the way you imagined it. But the upside of having two gatherings is I get to try again. So if you were here last week, by chance, and I'm only going to say this to the first hour, um, and you thought, man, Micah, that was a little rough, uh, you were right, and I would just say, please listen to the podcast, because I think I got it second hour. So... <laughs> Uh, I'm really sorry about that. Um, you know, that's live theater for you right there. Um, so, well, uh, we're, we're, we're in, is the fourth Sunday of Epiphany, if you are not aware of that, in the church calendar, and we're celebrating the light of God made known to us in Christ at Christmas, heading towards Lent. It is February, February the 2nd. It's 02-02-2020 today. So, that's a, I don't know what happens on dates like that, if you should, like, go buy something or, or do something you normally don't do, but... Uh, it, it, February contains my name day, but it also is uh, Black History Month, if you were not aware of that, a month where we, we set aside some time to highlight the beauty and strength of the African-American experience in our country, uh, something that I, I wish we didn't have to do, but I'm glad that we do do, so I uh, invite you to pay attention to that in your own way. Today we continue in our series on Galatians, and we're going to zero in on what may be arguably one of the most important moments in all of Paul's work in the New Testament, Galatians 3, 26 
through 28. And before I read that passage, I want to just set up where we are in chapter 3. If if you've been with us, remember we've ended the first section of Galatians, chapters 1 and 2, where Paul established his authority as an apostle, and he sort of sets the groundwork, the basis for the, the gospel, which is, according to him, Christ crucified and resurrected. And then in chapter 3, he begins to work out uh, uh, really the, the, the relationship between the law, the Torah, and adherence to the law and this gospel that he's talking about and the implications of that gospel. Um, he, he begins to sort of un, unfold this worldwide, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, nobody-left-behind people of God by faith which is in direct contrast to the Mosaic law and adherence to the law. And so he's saying adherence to the law is one way we've been doing it, but now there's this thing in Christ by faith that we're inviting you into. And uh, he begins chapter 3 with a real rhetorical zinger. Um, A lot of people have a problem with Paul. We're going to get to that in a bit more. But uh, I love a good, intelligent piece of sarcasm. You know what I'm saying? I think it's the highest form of of humor when used properly. It can also be really damaging, but it takes a, a, a witty person to do it well. And Paul begins in chapter 3 this way. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, you're now trying to finish by means of the flesh or by the law. So, in chapter 3, he's working out these two, this contrast between the law and then faith in Christ. And so, we get to Galatians 23, or 3.23, where we'll begin this morning. And I'll invite you to stand if you are able, and we'll read from Paul to the group of churches in Galatia. He says, after having said some of the things I just said, uh, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That word guardian is almost like a babysitter, like someone caring for you for a time. And now we're not under that law, he says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And here it is. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Pray with me. God, this morning as we open your word and attempt to learn and uh, offer ourselves to it, I pray that you would speak, um, that you would would give us a word, that you would give us an encouragement, something to uh, challenge us. To be the people that you've called us to be, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said together, amen. You may be seated. Uh, As I mentioned in my introduction, Galatians 3, 26 to 28, actually just 28, is believed to be one of, if not the first, repeated creeds of the Christian church. Uh, Imagine, Jesus has been crucified, he's been resurrected, uh, the Spirit of God has been poured out on the church at Pentecost, people are coming to faith in Christ in droves, 3,000 were added to their number daily according to the book of Acts, Uh, but the Gospels haven't been written yet, Paul hasn't written the epistles, Romans hasn't been written, but the church is gathering, they're worshiping, they're celebrating communion, and what else is at the center of their worship together? But baptism. Jesus himself, John the Baptist, both said, repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of God is near, at hand. The book of Acts tells the stories of families being baptized in the name of Jesus. 
this idea of participating in the death of Christ as we go under the water and being raised to walk in newness of life, participating in the new life of Christ by faith. Paul says anyone in Christ is a new creation. So what might the church of Jesus say over, speak over those being baptized in this newly forming people of God? Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. This arguably one of the first repeated Christian liturgies of the church. Like before the Gospels, before Paul wrote any letters, Paul's actually borrowing this. So if you imagine this new church forming and beginning as people are being baptized and going under the water, the church saying together, there is now therefore no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are one in Christ. It's beautiful, right? So hopeful, so unifying. And what an important message that we are one in Christ in this moment of baptism. So many would argue, and I would agree, that this is the high point, this is the telos, this is sort of the pinnacle of Paul's entire writing, Galatians 3.28. This is what Paul believes to be true about what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection. Every human bears the image of God and is celebrated and elevated. Any of the ways we differentiate and distinguish and devalue one another are washed away. They're destroyed. They're demolished. So here's what I want to do today. I want to make two observations, and then I want to ask one question. I want to make a couple of observations about this passage and about these, uh, well, Paul in particular, because you may be sitting here thinking, Micah, that's beautiful and that's great, but I know Paul said a couple of other things too. So how do you reconcile those? So we're going to work on that. And then, uh, uh, what are these categories that he's mentioning, and where do they come from? And then I want to finish with a question that uh, has just been really bothering me this week. And I hope it bothers you. Sorry, but that's, that's what we're going to do. So first, um, let's, let's, let's deal with, um, let me see if I can rescue Paul for some of us. I want to suggest first that Paul's not as bad as you think. Um, I have been in coffee shops with many of you who have told me that you really do not like Paul. That he bothers you, he sounds like a bully at times. In fact, Galatians, he kind of takes the gloves off. He, he pulls no punches with the fo these folks. And then other times, Paul sounds a little misogynistic, a little patriarchal. Anyone have a hard time with Paul in the room? I know who you are, so do not be shy. You've told me. These are two passages in the Bible that have been used time and time again uh, to limit the participation of women. And they do feel a little misogynistic, a little patriarchal, and have been harmful. 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. Let me read them. 1 Corinthians 14 says this. So I'm arguing, by the way, I'm arguing Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female, is the high point of Paul's theology. Okay, But now we have this, 1 Corinthians 14. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not, one, not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Okay. I want to suggest that Paul's not as bad as we think. Here's why. I want to entertain a what-if scenario. Just for a moment, just entertain this with me, uh, and I want to offer it to you. 
I'm arguing Galatians is the pinnacle. Galatians 3.28 is the high point of Paul's theology. It's what he believes to be true about the cross and the resurrection, what it's accomplished and what it ensures. There is therefore no distinctions or any distinctions we do make where we assign value based on gender, race, or class. They're, they're demolished in Christ. So how on earth, how can I say after reading these two verses that this is true uh, when these verses and others like it are sort of running around and wreaking havoc? Two words, scribes and pseudonyms. Scribes and pseudonyms, friends. Scribes first. In the world of the Bible, there are a few authors, but there are a lot more scribes. And what I mean by that is, the biblical text was written at a certain point. Yes, that's true. But then, there are many more scribes who copy and recopy, even edit and redact and compile what we now have as the Bible. A little history in the text here, friends. Stick with me. Here's an example, the book of Jeremiah. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found at a place called Qumran. And when they found these scrolls, they found that there were two separate scrolls of the prophet Jeremiah that were different from one another, which teaches us that there were two different scribes who edited and redacted and compiled the words of the prophet for the community that they served, and they ended up being different from one another. So what the Bible is, is all these texts sort of gathered up together and the reduction or the redaction, the sort of what's the heart, what's found, what's common in, in these different versions, and then what we have is that text. But it didn't just fall from the sky like that. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is another example. If you were to open your Bibles right now to the ending of Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, it ends in the earliest manuscripts in verse 9, which says this. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing. That was the end of the gospel in the earliest manuscripts. Scribes who came later decided that that wasn't a good ending to the story. If, I, if you have a Bible, open to Mark's gospel right now. Go ahead and do it. You'll notice that there's 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. It goes to 20, and that's the new ending of Mark's gospel. Friends, all the scholars would argue that was added later, at a later date, by a scribe or a group of scribes who just decided Mark's gospel did not have a good ending. So they added to it. They, they edited it. They redacted. Here's my point. Why does this matter? 1 Corinthians 14 is weird. If you study it carefully, you'll notice that it's weird for a number of reasons, but one of them is that it's in complete contradiction to 1 Corinthians 11. Just three chapters prior, Paul is assuming that women are prophesying in the church. That women are offering words from the Lord. They're hearing from God and they're offering it in worship. And what he asks them to do is cover their heads. Which is a cultural thing, right? For the sake of decency and modesty, wear a head covering when you're at church. But he doesn't silence them in the same book. And then three verses or three chapters later, he says, women should remain silent in churches. They're not allowed to speak. How can this be? Easy. Scribes. Somebody, at a later date, added something to Paul's original letter to 1 Corinthians. That's, that's the most scholared and argued position for how to reconcile these two passages. And who knows why, right? Maybe it was somebody who was, got the letter and they were copying it for their own community and there was some issue happening and they added that and there it is. Scribes do this. And this is not uncommon. This is not uncommon in the ancient world and it's not uncommon in the Bible. There are many, many examples of this. What about 1 Timothy? Um, in 1 Timothy, Paul instructs women to be in full submission and not to teach men or assume authority over a man. But how can this be? 18 times in the New Testament, Paul mentions women 
who are leaders in the church. He calls them apostles and co-laborers. Jesus' ministry was bankrolled by women. How is this, how can this be? Pseudonymous writers. A pseudonym is a person or group who assumes a name for a particular purpose, which can differ from their first or true name. Not uncommon, very, very, uh, uh, happened all the time in the ancient world where someone would assume the authority or the name or the platform of another and write in their name. So 1 Timothy, not written by Paul. Most scholars of the New Testament would argue that the, the letter 1 Timothy, which says, I, Paul, but was a pseudonymous writer writing in Paul's name. It's, it's dated far too late for it to be Paul, and it doesn't sound anything like Paul, especially when it gets to women, right? If Galatians, which arguably is Paul, and he says there is no male nor female, and then this, it, it doesn't even sound like Paul. If that's true and that's what Paul believes, then how can... Paul didn't write 1 Timothy. I want to argue that. So for those of you who have struggled with Paul... I want to just try to get him off the hook for you a little bit. I don't think he's as bad as we think he is. Now, I may have introduced a whole host of other questions to you this morning about, like, how on earth is that left in the Bible, and why did God leave it there? That's a sermon for another day. I can only do so much in 30 minutes. But at least for Paul, you're welcome, okay? I, I, I don't think he's as bad as we think he is. And, and I've, I've struggled with him at times, too. Which means... You dig in, you start re like reading and researching and studying, and then they come to find, oh, there, there, there's other ways to read this. Like 1 Timothy, lot, like really, really smart. People with lots of PhDs and letters after their name argue. Not written by Paul. Oh, that, okay, that answers that at least. So then we can, we can say Paul believes this about the cross and the resurrection and still figure, oh, okay, that's in there, I get it. We can make sense of it, right? So let's look at these three categories in Galatians chapter 3. Race, class, and gender, right? Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female. Uh, are they legitimate or how do they get there? And I want to sort of observe that we construct these distinctions. We build them. We make them. The ancient Christian liturgy in Galatians chapter 3 makes a profound claim that in Christ we are one. That the image of God in every human is to be celebrated, elevated, seen, and honored. And it does so by destroying or highlighting these three common ways that we other each other. That we create distance and differentiation between ourselves and another. And then we assign value based on that distinction. So this creed is making a profound claim that these distinctions don't exist. Jews and Gentiles was an ethnic, what we now call race differentiation, and then value assignment based on it. Slaves and free was a class differentiation and value then assigned on it. And male and female is a gender differentiation and value assigned based on it. And gang, we've been doing this from the beginning of time. Here are two quotes. One's from a non-Jewish source, one is from a Jewish source, predating Jesus. So one's uh, from a book called The Lives of the Philosophers. Hermippus, in the Lives of the Philosophers, refers to Thales the story, which is told by some of Socrates, namely, that he used to say there were three blessings for which he was grateful to fortune. First, that I was born a human being and not one of the brutes. What he means by that is like animals or slaves. Next, that I was born a man, not a woman. And thirdly, a Greek, not a barbarian. Uh, another quote from a, uh, attributed to Rabbi Judah 
he says this, there are three blessings one must pray daily. Blessed art thou who did not make me a Gentile. Blessed art thou who did not make me a woman. Blessed art thou who did not make me uneducated. And that later gets changed to, blessed art thou who did not make me a slave. We've been doing this forever. But here's what's crazy. We construct these distinctions. We make them as humans. Paul in Galatians is arguing that Jews once lived under the law as a guardian, but now no longer live under the law. Okay, that's his argument in Galatians. He's saying, you, us Jews, we once lived under the law, but no longer is that true. We don't do that anymore. And he literally says this in verse 23. We are no longer, and the Greek is on the screen behind me, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul then introduces the creed that he's using, right, source material he's inserting into Galatians. He uses that to further this argument and the translators use that language. So if in some of your translations, it will literally say, there is no longer any Jew or Gentile, no longer any slave or free, no longer any male or female. But the actual Greek in the, in the creed itself, in verse, or Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, is that uh, there is no Jew or Greek, which is short for this Greek phrase on, on the bottom, which means there does not exist. What's the creed just said? One of the most ancient things that Christians have been saying over each other in baptism for thousands of years. It's not that these things exist, but now they don't praise the Lord. It's saying they did not, do not, and will not exist. These distinctions, these ways by which we divide up and carve up the world, assign value based on, they did not, do not, and will not exist in Christ. Period. Hallelujah, right? That's good news. Baptism, which Paul's framing this conversation in, doesn't make that true, or it doesn't just, uh, it, it doesn't make that true. Rather, it reminds us that it is true. It's not that it is true, but thank the Lord it doesn't, it's not any longer. It's that it did not, it does not, and it will not exist. That's like a step up. One author says it this way. So here was the heart of the original creed. There is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male and female. Even though human beings very typically make distinctions based on race, class, and gender, they in fact do not rest on anything real. Here it is. Gender is a construct, class is a conceit, and race is not real. Race, class, and gender only exist if we construct them and enable them. Let me say that again. Race, class, and gender, these distinctions that we make and then value only exist if we build them and enable them. Let me take this a step further. It is Black History Month, and I do want to be a pastor who teaches and disciples you to be engaged in thinking critically about race and race in our, in our, our, our context. So race is not true. I would actually, I would change what, what, what the, the author says about race not being real. It is real. It's very real. I would say it this way. Race is not true. It is a construct that we built in order to justify the owning and oppressing of bodies in, in the early American project. It's not true, but it's real. 
So slavery, the owning and oppressing of another ethnic group of people, that's not new. That's not a new idea to humans. But the distinction of race based on the color of one's skin is a uniquely American idea that was birthed amidst our particular version of chattel slavery. So prior to the American project, the, the thing we call America, like if you would ask somebody, how do you identify yourself? They would say, oh, I'm Irish, I'm Italian, I'm Sudanese, I'm Kenyan, right? Ethnic. Race, in order for Anglo-Saxon European settlers to justify the owning of African bodies, there emerged an alliance based on the color of skin. And that alliance gave birth to the racial categories that we call black and white. Race is not true, it's real, but it's not true. It did not, does not, and will not exist in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's affirming. The point I'm making here is we create them, we construct them, we enable them in order, hear me friends, in order to assign value and justify our treatment. In order to create or just assign value and then based on that value, we act in certain ways. The creed that Paul's using in his letter to the Galatians declares that this distinction of black and white and all other distinctions that we build did not, do not, and will not exist in Christ unless we allow them to exist, unless we enable them, unless we prop them up and turn a blind eye to them. They are not of God and they will not last in the age to come. Praise the Lord, church. That's good news. That's good news. Any and all of the ways that we differentiate and then assign value based on race, class, gender, and any other distinction. They are not of Christ. They are anti-Christ. So Paul, maybe not as bad as we think he might be, he's trying to dismantle these ways that we differentiate and carve up humanity and assign value. He's saying, no, 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 no. That, that did not, does not, and will not exist. Which, imagine, if you would, close your eyes and imagine, like, 2,000 years ago, Christ has been crucified, resurrected, he's ascended, the spirit of God has been given, and the church is growing. And over every baptism, every person that goes under the water and comes up out of the water, what do they say? There is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. In Christ, we are one. So good. Now let me close with a question. And it's a question, as I said before, that I've been sitting with since it arrested me this week in study. We've been dividing each other up based on all kinds of distinctions from the beginning of time, right? That much is true. But here's my question. What's the common denominator in all of the systems, governments, and empires of the world that have systemically and institutionally oppressed others? Like, think back over, over the course of history. What's a common denominator of an empire, a system, a government that has assigned value and then treated differently based on that value, race, class, gender? Men. I would argue men who are afraid of something. I did this, I did a little study this, you know, I, I ran this by a couple people, and there were both genders in my, my little case study, and 
the man in the conversation was like, And the woman, women in the conversation were like, <laughs> honestly, I, I, I'm not even joking you. I mean, this was like a, and, 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 and for me, when, when I read this quote that I'm going to read to you, I was like, oh my gosh. If that's, and it's not hard to prove, is it, ladies? I'm reading this book called The Forgotten Creed, which is about this passage that we're studying today. It says this. It is a banal theory that says, quite simply, at least I'm better than somebody. A native is better than a foreigner. A master is better than a slave. A man is better than a woman. Why? Men of privilege, like Aristotle have been creating rational answers to, these question, to this question for centuries. But really, it is all about the fear of difference and the power to assuage that fear through domination. If I may, just for a moment, speak to the men in the room. Ladies, can I do that? Okay. Um, gentlemen, or those that identify as male in the room, I, I, I want to I encourage, I want to challenge us to do at least two things. One, to do our own work, and two, to become men of God. First, if we think back on the history of the world, and the common denominator in nearly all oppression that we have ever known is men who are afraid of something, and sure, you could argue that there are systems and there are women who do this, yes, right? Okay, not, not everyone's off the hook, right? We all are, but let's be real, okay? Most of the time... The, the difficulty, the challenge, the, the harm, the oppression that we've experienced has been at the hands of men in the world. And arguably men who are afraid of something. So men in the room, when we don't do our own work, when we don't go all the way in and open up the, the chasms and the, the catacombs of our souls and our hearts, and we think about and work through that which is, we're afraid of and insecure about, it comes out in very predictable ways. And it often looks like power over, not power under. So men in the room, I want to challenge you to do your own work. Find a therapist. Find a spiritual director. Find people that you love and trust who can shine the flashlight on what's true and real about what are you afraid of? What are you insecure about? What are the ways in which you question that make you insecure that come out in very predictable ways according to history and, and the story of humanity? There's this idea that we should become men of God. And that often comes with like power, right? That we should lead and we should be, like provide and we should protect and be the spiritual leaders of our family. Those things aren't inherently bad. But it's interesting that it comes from it. I, I want to say it, it's, a, it's almost propped up by the same spirit. If when men who are following this Jesus are in tune with and, and listening to the spirit of God and like, uh, recognize their own fear and their own insecurity and, it, and, and walk or, or, or show up in the world in transformed ways, I guarantee you, according to Jesus, it will look like sacrifice of self, gentleness, humility, and power under and not power over. That's what a man of God looks like. So 
that person always asks for forgiveness first. They say, I'm sorry first. They bend down. They serve first. They're humble first. They're gentle first. So if you want to be a man of God, I highly recommend it. I say, go for it. (laughs) Be transformed by the Spirit of God. Work out your own stuff. Show up authentic and transformed. And it will always look like, always, always, always look like power under. Never power over. That's antichrist. (laughs) We can only do that when we assign value based on distinction and difference. You see the connection? So don't do that. Men, what does Jesus do with his disciples? He's like, this is what it looks like. You bend down. You serve. You're humble. You're gentle. You're kind. You're compassionate. And there is a strength in that that will change the world. Amen? It will change our families. It will change our churches. It will change our governments. God, it will change our governments, right? I mean, if it's a mess out there, let's just look at the ratio of men to women. So, gentlemen, I think that the world needs men who are strong and who understand themselves and who show up as transformed people in the world. We are not inherently bad. You are not inherently bad. There are some very predictable ways that your fear and and pain come out. There are very predictable ways that my fear and my pain comes out. Let's pay attention to that. Let me close with this. Paul, in a letter to a group of churches in Galatia, says, in Christ there is no longer... Actually, there does not exist the distinction between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. We are one in Christ. There is an image of God that every human being bears that is to be honored and celebrated and highlighted and lifted up. To me, that's good news. And I want to invite you, the church, us, the church, this church, to hear that word, to let it sink all the way in, to ask what are the ways that I carve up the world? What are the ways that I make distinctions and add value or judgment? To denounce those, to repent from those, and to say, Holy Spirit, transform me, transform us, change my heart so that I might see the image of God in my brother or my sister, even my enemy, and ascribe insurpassable and infinite worth to them. Why? Because you are created in the image of the divine. That's my job. That's your job. That's our job. When we see another human being, however different they may be from you, to ascribe insurpassable and infinite worth to them. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. Insofar as Jesus died for you, he died for them. Amen? That is what Paul believes the cross and the resurrection has accomplished and ensured. So may it be true of you. May it be true of me. Pray with me if you would. God, this morning as we take just a moment to quiet our hearts, to hear what the Spirit 
of the living God might say. I want to invite you in the next few moments of silence to ask the question, are there any ways in which I differentiate those in my world and assign value based on those differentiations? Are there any ways that I participate in that? Paul offers race, class, and gender. But there are others. So in the next few moments of silence, I want to invite you to allow the Spirit of God to shine the light, to turn on the lights, and maybe repent from any ways that we participate in that. Maybe you've been the, uh, under the effect of that. And so maybe it's a, an ask of God for healing. And in the next few moments of silence, I want to invite you to do that. So Holy Spirit, lead us. Uh, we trust you, God. We know that you are good, that you are light, that you are love, you are compassion. All of those things exist in you. They are you. And so we trust ourselves to you. As we close this morning, would you stand if you're not? And I want to read just a small portion of Jesus' prayer in John 17. Um, and I'd love for you, if you... If you would, maybe even close your eyes and imagine what Jesus looks like. Uh, and if you're comfortable, you can pass. But if you're comfortable, maybe even hold out your hands and receive these words as if Jesus himself were praying them for you, for the church, for us. He says this, My prayer is not for you alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then, and then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God, we ask that you would do in us what Jesus hoped for. That you would bind our hearts together as your church and that a watching world would see something that is uncommon and unheard of. A group of people who are one. Where distinctions and differences don't exist but where the image of God that each of us bears is seen and heard, celebrated and valued. And that as that life exists here in this community, God, that it would be good news for the world. And that's my prayer for this church and for all the churches that represent you in the world. So Holy Spirit, make it true in us. Transform us, change us, heal us, heal our broken hearts and the ways that we mistreat each other, the ways that we privilege ourselves over others. Heal us, God, we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit, and the church said together, amen.
Amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.